My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today I'm joined by Jason Snyder. He is a self-described metamodern localist, and he is on the faculty of Appalachian State University. Um, and why I wanted to talk to him is that he is one of the uh, the leading voices, the leading faces of homesteading, of localism, uh, and he has a lot of interesting things to say about that. So uh, welcome, Jason. Thank you, Alex. Great to be here. Very happy to have you here. Um, I'm curious, uh, how, how does one get into this <laughs> how how did what was your path what was your path to this point because i'm i mean i'm I, w- yeah. I would say i'm trending that way as well i'm probably you know a few yeah. a few years uh, behind you uh but i'm curious kind of what, what was your path to this point it was long and tortured uh i'll, I'll <laughs> say that um my parents were hippies they met on a commune uh i grew up kind of you know pretty pretty left on the progressive side kind of became uh you know through my graduate school, PhD, you know, I was kind of on track to be a technocrat, uh, kind of a, you know, you could say a progressive technocrat, uh, applied economics. Uh, And then in the last couple of years, I've just kind of something switched in my mind. uh, And I've just, you know, started noticing the fragility of what we call like globalism or global capitalism uh, and the need to become more resilient as individuals, uh, as communities, um, and, you know, part of what got me leading, you know, led me down that path was from the environmental ecological side. Um, you know, a lot of in, in indicators show that we're in the midst of collapse, uh, ecological collapse, as well as climate chaos. And, and, you know, thinking about it from a technocratic lens, I just saw that that lens as, you know, pretty futile. Uh, and, you know, I started uh, learning about things like bioregionalism, the regeneration scene, that also led into localism. Uh, and um, to me, localism, you know, is all about um, reviving, regenerating both our ecology, but also our culture and our community. And, and so, you know, parallel with all that, I saw that, you know, what we've seen with globalization is just the hollowing out of culture and communities and traditions. Um, and so both of those things kind of converged and, and here I am now. Um, I wouldn't, you know, I don't know if I describe myself as a trad, uh, but I definitely, uh, resonate a lot with kind of, you know, cottage core, uh, that kind of <laughs> trad, but, um, you know, I, I also still have a foot in kind of the, you could say the, the, the left, but I just think that a lot of what we you know, see as the left now, um, especially this kind of merging of, um, you know, corporate and state power, I just see it's the wrong way to go. And it's just not going to end well. 
Yeah, it's, it's it's interesting to me, like all these definitions, you know, right, left, mm -hmm. trad, I don't know, not non-trad, you know, <laughs> neoliberal, yeah. modernist. Um, right. They're starting to, you know, lose their their meaning day by day. I mean, I don't even know if they had like some some coherent meaning. Everyone sees something else in them, uh, but I do see a lot of people, you know, showing an uh, showing an interest in in um, in scaling back and like in in degrowth and you know in in yeah in a critique, um, a considered, you know, and, and by considered, I mean, not just rationalist critique of, um, mm. of what's going on, because, you know, like you said, collapse, collapse has been on, on my mind and on the mind mm. of a lot of people who are kind of in these spaces. And what I really enjoy about kind of, of the, of about Twitter, essentially, because that's kind of mm. the, the space where, you know, where I, I found your stuff and where I get to interact with a lot of people is that I see, everyone kind of converging onto this field, but mm -hmm. they're coming from such different places where I think that that's a, a really big asset because mm -hmm. I, I know kind of where I've come. I'm kind of like, I'm a pretty much a right winger and, you know, mm -hmm. I've come to the space and then you interact with all these like post left people, people who are like, you know, completely, you know, hyper Marxists. And, uh, and in a way, if you, if you boil down to the argument, we, we kind of all agree, you know, this, right. you know, what, what, uh, can't go on, won't go on. And I think mm. the question is just, you know, what's, what's next. So I'm curious what your vibe is uh, with, uh, with this whole movement and, you know, degrowth and um, mm. is, is there a kind of, is there something you're, you're thinking about? Is that something you're thinking about in terms of, if, I guess you're a practical man. Is there any <laughs> practical approach to it that, <laughs> that people might uh, be able to take? Yeah, well, so degrowth is kind of an academic concept, right? And it, and it mainly comes from the left, you know, uh, the kind of the eco left. Uh, they're basically saying that, look, the, you know, the level of material and energy throughput in our economy is incredibly wasteful. Uh, and we can actually, the, the hypothesis is that we can achieve a better quality of life just with less waste, less material throughput. Um, and, um, but I see that the people who are actually living degrowth in their lives or attempting to are often people who, you know, who would describe as localists. Right. Um, and it's interesting because localists, I, I was just tweeting about this a, a few minutes ago, but localists don't tend to, you know, think of their project in terms of degrowth, but I see it as like the embodiment of degrowth, right. Uh, of create, you know, uh, creating or relocalizing economies, um, you know, making it more self-sufficient, it's not going to be totally self-sufficient. You know, I'm not going to, my neighbor's not going to make my computer for me. Right. So there still needs to be scale, uh, uh, for some things, but, um, I think especially in terms of like thinking about traditional crafts, um, traditional agriculture, things like that, like that, it was just, you know, much more in line with kind of meaningful livelihoods, I would say, um, uh, you know, multi-generational livelihoods where there's, you know, tradition that develops and, you know, it develops around all aspects of culture from food, you know, from recipes that your grandma, you know, your grandma had um, and all of this great stuff. But it was also, I would say, more ecologically aware, um, even if it's not always so explicit. You know, if, if you're localizing your livelihood a little bit, um, you know, you're more in touch with kind of ecological limits. And if you destroy your topsoil, for example, you know, eventually you're not going to be able to grow food and you can't just import it from elsewhere, you know, go to, you know, a big chain grocery store and get it. Uh, and so it does kind of inherently put you put, put you in touch with kind of 
ecological living as well, or rewilding we ourselves. You know, there's there's so many different terms that that can be used for, <laughs> for these things depending on what kind of sociological movement you're a part of. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that 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 makes a lot of sense, and there are definitely a, a lot of terms floating around for yeah. for everything. Um, mm. So it seems to me like like localism, in a way, is almost indistinguishable from resetting limits. So from the reintroduction of this of these mm. limits, because essentially local being local is already a limit. It's a it's a mm. you know space limit that you're imposing on yourself. Um, yeah. and I feel like that this extends into so many other things. Um, because in a way, you know, this runaway neoliberalism, what it has done is it it has it's extremely good at reducing friction. You know, it reduces mm -hmm. the touch points that you have with your yeah. environment, reduces the touch points you have with with the people around you. You're not you're you're independent. It, it's it's a mm -hmm. catalyst for total independence. And essentially, that's kind of why I what what attracts me to you know things like localism things like you know i, I live in a multi-generational home right now just to, yeah. to say i live in a duplex with my mom which is a good nice. thing now because i'm <laughs> i'm gonna have a baby soon so this is a yeah. this is a primo terrace primo real estate that i'm inhabiting now right. um so it's um you know just kind of descaling because i used to be very much a one of these technocrats i used to work in tech mm. i guess i guess i kind mm. of still work in a tech adjacent space um mm. and this is this is a, you kind of the the reintroduction the considered reintroduction of friction into my life uh right. was was the kind of the step for me um i'm, I'm curious what's uh do you think that that's uh that has does, does that make sense that's kind of my question yeah no it totally makes sense um you know so i mean localism is, you know it's it's not so much to me it's not so much about left and right but it's 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 about scale right and you know you can have a local localized commune that's super left and you can have you know, a community like the Amish, you know, uh, which arguably is more traditional or, you know, I don't know if you say right necessarily. Um, and so it's, it's really, you know, it, it's the idea that, well, you know, many different kinds of lifestyles perhaps can work. You know, we've seen in the 70s, a lot of the, the communes and stuff didn't really work out in the United States, but perhaps some of them can work. But, you know, it's, it's, it's really about um, it is about bringing in friction because it's about internalizing your costs. Right. Um, in economics, you have this term of like, ex you know, externalities, right? Like environmental externalities or the externalities if you outsource jobs, you know, that has on those communities, things like that. And it's really about fully accounting for the costs um, in your life. So it's definitely not frictionless. Right. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I actually I listened to one of your recent podcasts um, with the, the guy from uh, I forget, but yeah, when you was talking when you guys were talking about the frictionless society and how like in neoliberalism, you know, it's kind of this attempt to create this kind of perfectly atomized society where people don't really have to interact with each other. You know, there's no real culture, um, and yeah, I mean, that just seems like a dystopia, um, but you know, if you want to have meaning in your life, there's going to be friction. I just think those two have to go hand in hand, right? Like you have to have, there has to be some struggle. Like you might not get along with all of your family members or all of your neighbors and there's going to be struggle and you have to work things out. But that's, that's part of having a meaningful life. Um, yeah. You know, there's this, there's this concept uh, called the hormetic zone where stressors in your environment can make you more resilient, stronger up to a certain level. Beyond that, it traumatizes you, makes you weaker, but we do need stressors in our life. Um, and, you know, if those stressors are, you know, well-designed by design, I don't necessarily mean, I don't mean top down, but, 
evolved, they make sense, right? Like you, for example, you're a teenager and you're going through a rite of passage ceremony or something, right? Like you're, you're experiencing a lot of stressors, but it's, it's making you, you know, for, for a boy, it's making you into a man, right? Or, you know, and you have something analogous for women. Um, uh, I, I, you know, so it's not just, so it's about, we do need stressors, but also the right kind of stressors. Um, and I think something like neoliberalism, it attempts to make things frictionless. It atomizes us, but it also brings in a, you know, a whole bunch of new stressors through the back door, you know, psychological distress that is much more abstract and hard to pin down and kind of placeless. Like it's, it doesn't really exist anywhere, but you know, people, um, don't, uh, I think many people in today's world or in modernity just feel like there's something missing in their life. There's something lacking. And I definitely felt that. Like I, I, I had this kind of, you know, low key depression uh, for a long time that I couldn't really pin down, um, you know, living in a suburb and things like that. And, you know, now getting started with the homesteading and things like that, like, you know, it's very, it's very stark to me, you know, that what I was missing because I'm not, I don't have that same existential angst anymore. Uh, in the same way. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's definitely resonates with me a lot. Um, I was reading something recently about um, how, you know, people are, when they try to relax, they essentially engage in the same type of activities that, you know, cause their burnout or cause their, you know, them kind of to, to overheat in the first place. And there's that there's, you know, that there are not many opportunities for, for people to relax in, uh, in, in modern culture, um, because right. you would have to be engaging with other parts of your brain to kind of give these parts, you know, the screen, you know, hyper input parts of your brain a relaxation. But if you think about how people relax nowadays, you know, they play a video game, which is, you know, hyper input or they watch a movie or they watch a difference, read a book or something. It's still kind of, you're still in the stream of hyper input and it's not surprising that, and, and just sitting there, you know, if, if you're good at meditation, you can do that. But most people, mm. you know, idea of meditation sitting for 10 minutes on a pillow a day, you know, it's, yeah. it, it takes a while for you to get there. Uh, and I realized just doing stuff myself, you know, um, manual labor, you know, just doing yeah. things is a type of brain activity that is not, you know, just being hooked up to the to the main line of, of information and just receiving mm -hmm. is essentially, yeah, just completely doing something else. And it's the most relaxing thing you can do. Plus, you're tired as hell afterwards. And then you can really right. you can sleep okay. And you know, don't have mm -hmm. those stress dreams about tigers mauling you or whatever. I don't know what <laughs> other people's have. But that's, that's a recurring one for me. Um, so um, I don't know, it's, it's, is that a thing that you've you've seen, you know, being more engaged and and I guess there's a lot of manual labor on the homestead? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's interesting you mentioned meditation because I used to be kind of a meditation nut and I still I still enjoy meditation, but I'm not nearly as hardcore. But one thing that meditation taught me was the importance of the body and locating emotions and thought streams, connecting, you know, like for example, you know, kind of recursive thought streams um, that you know, that were producing some kind of suffering, connecting it to sensations in the body. And so then this led, led me into this whole kind of literature called, you know, uh, an activism or embodied cognition, you know, of how much uh, knowledge and information is actually kind of stored in the body. And, you know, the, the mind-body connection uh, is much more integrated than I think a lot of kind of rationalistic type of people really think. Uh, but, that, but there was an, a natural kind of connection with embodied cognition, kind of a sister concept is situated cognition, which is being kind of uh, more embedded into your environment. And, you know, your environment kind of 
becomes like you co-evolve with your environment, you know, and, and there arises a set of affordances, what are called affordances where, you know, like the environment almost kind of becomes an extension of yourself. Um, and also it modulates your behavior and your thinking, but you also modulate it as well. And there's this, this kind of like evolutionary dynamic. Um, and I think that what you're saying about manual labor is, is spot on. Um, you know, I don't, uh, you know, I, I do think it's good, you know, with modern technology that we have the opportunity to get rid of like the most brutal kinds of manual labor, like, you know, that just, you know, destroys people's bodies and, you know, by the time they're 40 or something. But I do think that many of us need to get back to like using our body and our mind in conjunction with each other. Um, and this, you know, for me, like, so I, um, I, I just yesterday I bought a, I bought a scythe, right. And, you know, I could, I could buy a mower, um, you know, and, and then, you know, I can mow my lawn and then I can go for a jog or I could just get a scythe, you know, perform the same job and get my exercise at the same time. And, you know, this is just an, an example to me of like how ridiculous some elements of modernity are of like, you know, everything is so compartmentalized where like we have to go to the gym because our life, you know, is no longer connected to our body really, you know. Um, and yeah, yeah. Maybe... having a cleaner and going to the gym is, uh, is quite an interesting right. thing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I feel great. I mean, I, I try and get out uh, every day for at least like 30 minutes to an hour to, to do like physical labor outside. Like there's just no, no better form of mental health cultivation than that to me. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's definitely it. You know, I've, um, I'm, I'm I go for walks, which is not that great. Cause we, we live in kind of a, like a, a small city, so it's still an urban mm -hmm. environment. We've got a garden and everything, but it's, yeah, it's still kind of a, a, a central, central place. Um, but I, I'd love to be able to just be a bit closer to nature, but that's in the future. That's, that's the plan. Mm -hmm. You know, we're about right. two years away from the homestead as well, but we're still yeah. kind of, we're still gearing up for it. Um, I'm I'm curious. Um, you there's a term you mentioned, uh, doomer optimism. What is doomer mm -hmm. optimism? I'm curious about that. Yeah, well, so it's not a term that I coined, but um, I'm good friends with the person who who I think coined it. Um, so there's this whole kind of um, what are called doomers, you know, or black. You know, you've taken the black pill, uh, and you can be a doomer for different reasons. You could be a doomer because you see that you know uh, the state is becoming oppressive. Uh, for right, you know, from the you know from the left or from the right, you could be a doomer because you see uh, climate change is spinning out, you know, can spin out of control, or ecological degradation can spin out of control. And so, a doomer just generally means that you you think that we're all in a lot of trouble, right? And and society is going to collapse somehow. Yeah, come in. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, you know, political decay, you know, institutional decay, you know, and for any reason. Um, and the optimism part comes in where uh, you, you kind of recognize that, okay, you've internalized that things, you know, there, there, is, some, there is some kind of collapse or decay. Um, uh, but, you know, with that collapse or decay provides new opportunities for some kind of regeneration, you know, whether it be culturally, ecologically, uh, et cetera. And so it's kind of thinking, you know, I used to be a member of what's called the Baha'i faith, and they, they have this concept of, uh, the crumbling of the old world order and the building of the new. And you shouldn't concern yourself so much with the crumbling of the old world order, uh, but you should focus on creating the new institutions, the, the new ways of living that will arise in their place, kind of from the ashes. And, and even the, 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 the crumbling order 
you know, can almost be thought of as, as, as kind of a, um, you know, kind of a compost, you know, so, so, you know, an example, th this might not be a great example, but I think it may be gestures that we're getting at. So we have, we have this, we have this kind of COVID pandemic thing, right. And it's a, it's a big shock to the system. Um, you know, I tend to think that much bigger shocks are coming, but it's a big shock, you know, and it affects many of us, um, you know, to, to a greater or lesser degree. Uh, but, you know, certain opportunities uh, arise from this. You know, one is we see this kind of remote work revolution thing, which I think, you know, a lot of people don't have that opportunity, you know, but for the people who can work remotely, they have the opportunity to live wherever they want. So, for example, they can move out of a big city or a suburb uh, and go up, go start a homestead. Right. Uh, and I'm not saying that that's like, you know, that's enough to move towards localism itself, because localism would imply an investment in your local economy and actually getting more and more of your livelihood from the locality uh, or, or the region. But, um, you know, it's a, it's, it's a step, you know, it, it can be a step in the right direction for, for a lot of people. Uh, and so that's just, you know, I don't know if that's a great example, but, it, but it's an example where, you know, some kind of shock to the system uh, creates an opportunity to create an alternative, better system, you know, at least at the seed stage, um, you know, at a grassroots level. Um, so that's where the optimism comes in is like, okay, like, you know, the current trajectory of society is not going in a good direction, but Hey, like, you know, let's, you know, let, let's not waste all of our energy fighting against a crumbling system. Let's spend our energy building up something better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Kind of like a, you know, having the Phoenix mindset, you know, always yeah. uh, make, yeah, make exactly. the, make the best out of these ashes. <laughs> um, yeah. um, you you're you're obviously deeply involved in and in, in homesteading permaculture you you kind of have deep knowledge in the space is there um is there a white pill you can share with people like what's what's the biggest white pill in the space like what's what's the, <laughs> what's your reason for for, for yeah. hope well i'm still a I, I just i'm still a baby in the space um you know i've only been homesteading for about a year and and you know i'm still kind of a baby homesteader and, and a baby permaculturalist um you know, I'd say the white pill is that so so tied with this notion of localism is there's this other notion of cosmopolitan localism and the cosmopolitan part comes in, you know, with, for example, what we're doing right now. You know, we're talking with each other in other parts of the world, uh, you know, as John Norman put put it, you know, this isn't a local conversation, but it is small scale. It is it is decentralized. Right. And so and those two concepts kind of go hand in hand. And so we do, you know, for you know, what, we're, what I'm thinking of as like a 21st century new localism is that you have the kind of localization of, of production uh, to a greater or lesser degree, depending on, you know, I think some things are, are, are more amenable than others uh, and livelihoods, but you still have this kind of cosmopolitan element of like exchanging ideas and innovations across the space. And so, for example, in permaculture, you know, I, I just see that there seems to be a lot of grassroots innovation. You know, just if you go on YouTube in time of permaculture, you know, you'll find hundreds of videos of people like, you know, trying things, you know, maybe taking information from books, but then but then adapting it to their own circumstance. You know, they, they develop new knowledge, new insight, which then they share. And so there seems to be kind of an opportunity to to bootstrap, um, you know, uh, this kind of movement, you know, uh, because we have this we have this kind of information flow which we didn't have in the past. And so this is definitely a different kind of localism. Uh, and so I'd say the white pill is that I just think that the permaculture movement 
has really exploded um, in the last decade and the last couple of decades. And, and you're finding people from, you know, from many different walks of life from, you know, kind of more traditionally minded people, um, you know, like local, I mean, permaculture really is just kind of traditional or indigenous agriculture, you know, rebranded, right. And, and with new kind of people innovating in the space. Uh, and so I find that especially people who are interested in kind of like natural law, you know, the, the, and these notions of, of, um, uh, of just being kind of tied to tr tradition and culture, they're really, you know, they're really attracted to permaculture um, for, you know, one set of reasons. And then people on the left who are worried about environmental issues are also really attracted to permaculture for another, for another set of issues. So, so, so it seems to be kind of a, a unifying bridge where not that these communities are going to like each other or necessarily want to live with each other. And that's fine, right? Localism uh, allows for diversity of living arrangements and experiments in living. But there is this kind of like, you know, to me, this kind of bootstrapping of, you know, a, a lot of innovation um, really quickly. And, and by innovation, I don't mean high tech. You know, most of it's pretty low tech, but it's it's really like clever. You know, it's really ingenious stuff of just like, you know, oh, you know, create your hoop house this way and you get like, you know, much better results. And that kind of information, you know, if it's, you know, if, if there's proof of concept, it can spread really quickly. And so that I would say that's to me is the biggest white pill is just kind of this decentralized, um, the, the, the decentralization movement in general and, and what it enables in terms of, uh, you know, kind of, you know, hundreds and thousands of experiments and living and sharing these, these learnings uh, in different contexts and adapting different contexts. Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. And it's, um, I feel like it, it translates into, again, other other areas as well. Because like you said, you know, that you might have kind of like a right wing permaculturalist next to left wing mm -hmm. permaculturalist. But I feel like yeah. these two, even even ideologically, they're starting to intertwine in ways I haven't really seen before. Because yeah. on, on the right, you see kind of the, you know, the, the Koch brothers libertarian consensus uh, kind of crumbling at the moment. And there's right. also a movement of, kind of conservative conservationists coming yeah. up who are much more ecologically minded, who are much more open to arguments, you know, they're not just going to say, oh, it's, it's all a conspiracy. And, you know, these, these right. hippies want to destroy the economy. Uh, right. But, you know, there's just quite a lot of open-mindedness on, on both sides. So I, I think that's really, mm -hmm. that's really interesting. And it's heartening because I've, you know, I've, I grew up in, I grew up in the mountains here in Romania and I, I know a lot about nature. I was really kind of into, you know, foraging and yeah, mm -hmm. you know, I'm really, you know, I'm really concerned about these spaces and it's, you know, I'm, I'm happy that, you know, things, things are converging in a positive way. So do you think that there's, um, I don't know, do you, have you had any experiences with, with the kind of the conservative end of, of this, uh, of this space or is, are, are your circles mostly, mostly left? Um, on Twitter, definitely. I mean, I think I'd say a lot of my new mutuals are, are people in kind of like this, you know, kind of uh, conservative uh, naturalist space. Uh, um, you know, like you tend to have a lot of accounts now with like trees in their bios, right? And and that's you know, it's it's hard to know like where politically tradition, according to traditional categories, they're coming from. But you know, many times, um, you know, they're they're like religious folks, right? Or 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 or, or people who recognize that, like you said, the kind of the Koch brothers, libertarian conservative neoconservative consensus is crumbling um and and they're realizing that a lot of these principles in say permaculture really graft on well to kind of like traditional livelihoods um 
you know, yeah. it, it, you know, it really grabs on well to, you know, the family farm, right. And, and foraging and hunting, like all of that stuff is, you know, part of kind of the, the permacultural matrix, so to speak. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I interact, um, more and more lately actually with more on the kind of traditional right side of the spectrum. But as, as you said, like, I think, you know, me growing up, what I consider left and right, like I always considered a right wing to be like Bush, you know, <laughs> Bush and Cheney <laughs> kind of right wing. Like that was my interpretation of right wing. And I was like, oh, that, that, that stuff's bullshit. Right. Um, and, you know, now that we're seeing kind of this, you know, I, I kind of see it as like uh, an ideological wild west where all of these kind of political axes are being shaken up. Right. And it's, it's really exciting. I mean, there's also potential dangers in it, uh, of course, but um, it's also really exciting to, to see that, you know, like a, a more, um, for me, a more useful axis is, is really kind of uh, localist versus globalist, right? Um, and uh, because that kind of transcends both left and right in a way, you know, it's, it's just a different political axis, I, I think, altogether. Um, now, I guess this is kind of an aside, but that, you know, that's not to say that you know. I also, I also see. So, so one way I like to define localism is is minimum viable scale, uh, and sometimes I think that scale is still global. But I and so there will still be kind of like larger scales of governance. Um, but I think that that because we have the new, this new technology, because we have kind of the you know uh, the crypto space and and different kinds of protocols and smart contracts, like, like there's ways to govern at a higher scale when necessary, um, you know, but in a more emergent fashion, right. In a more kind of consensus emergent fashion, instead of kind of a, a top down technocratic fashion. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I can see this, you know, going up all the way to, you know, a global scale, like at a global scale, you know, nuclear proliferation, you know, that's, that's a global scale problem. Um, you know, there's projected to be hundreds of millions of climate refugees in the next few decades. I would say that's a global scale problem. Um, you know, uh, you know, tens of millions of people in Bangladesh are probably going to have to 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 migrate uh, due to climate change and rising sea levels. Um, you know, and by the way, they they contributed some of the, some of the least to the actual emissions problems, and so that's why I also see that as a global problem. And so, you know, when when I so I, I think that there's this kind of like new emergent realization that, you know, we can you know we can have uh, kind of the benefits of globalization and of cosmopolitanism, um, but we can we can shed a lot of the costs that we've seen. And, and I, 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 the distinction I make, kind of the conceptual distinction, is between kind of an extractive globalism, extractive both in terms of cultures, communities, and the environment, to a regenerative uh, globalism, or, or actually I would say more of a planetary consciousness. So it's like a kind of localization in terms of our life, you know, our, our life ways, but kind of a rising planetary consciousness in terms of like, you know, we can collaborate when we need to, but, but we're not going to do it in the same way, you know, that, that, we've, that we've seen in the 20th century. Yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the argument I, I see a lot from people who say, okay, you know, climate change is a global, um, is a global problem. Therefore we need mm. global government. And I always say, you know, yeah. that that's, that's a, that's a leap. You need global right. coordination. Global yeah. government is very different. So exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, governance, there's a, I always make the distinction between government and governance and governance does not, does not imply necessarily a government, right? So I'm, I'm also wary of kind of a, a global government type solution. I, I, you know, I think it's, there's a high likelihood that would, that would, that would be horrible. Uh, and, but I, I, you know, we can have collaboration, we can have governance, 
Um, and again, we have the technology that's developing now that can help us, you know, collaborate much more effectively, maybe than we did in the past. Of course, there's there's challenges to that. You know, there's there's a lot of kind of dark stuff, you know, that you know, dark potentials as well in terms of like, you know, uh, you know, manipulation um, of you know narratives and memes and kind of kind of a hyper postmodern kind of you know everybody lives in their own reality. Like I think that's you know that's kind of a, a challenge, but it, but but the opportunity for sense making, you know, across localities and what I would call mimetic mediation is also much higher. Yeah, and there there is a bit of a clearing effect in these spaces. You know, the the, the intervals between the generation of bullshit and the uncovering of bullshit also get get tighter and tighter because everything's yeah. so so fast and iterative. Obviously, things can have runaway effects, but you know, because information's so open, you do eventually find out. You know, there there is going to be someone on a forum somewhere who's going to you know be the whistleblower on something right. eventually. So I, I feel like that's you know that gives me hope. Um, uh, you, um, mentioned permaculture. This is one thing that people push back on, on permaculture. It's just, mm -hmm. this is kind of a basic criticism. It's like, if everyone just grew stuff in their, in their back doors, <laughs> you would be missing out on the, yeah. uh, economies of scale on, on mm -hmm. the, the global logistics gains, you know, you wouldn't be able to feed people without, you know, big plots of monoculture and, you know, mm -hmm. sending it around and, and I don't know, however yeah. this stuff gets sent around in a very efficient <laughs> way. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's that's a you know it, it's a valid critique, um, and, and I think that's something that permaculturists need to need to contend with. Um, a few things I would say, you know, one, uh, the industrial agriculture we see today, uh, I would say, is not long for this world, um, just because it's incredibly energy intensive. Uh, it still mostly relies on fossil fuels for all the inputs. You know, all of the all of the pesticides, all of the, all of the fertilizers. Um, you know, are, are made through fossil fuels. Um, the, the big machinery that, that is used for really large scale farming is still extremely fossil fuel dependent. Uh, we're losing topsoil at a rapid rate. You know, a lot of large scale monoculture farmers see, they don't see soil, they see dirt as a, as a medium for uh, basically the chemicals that they put in to, to, to grow the crops. Um, these chemicals wash off, you know, they, they end up in the oceans um, they're contributing to, you know, the, the die off of coral reefs and aquatic ecosystems. Um, and so, you know, so on the one hand, I would say that the current mode is, is, is going to lead to, you know, uh, along the current trajectory is not sustainable. Um, and so it'll, it'll feed a lot less people in the long run. But two, I would also say that, you know, much of the world still feeds itself through kind of, um, these kind of small scale, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, informal kind of farmers and, and, and economies. I mean, much of much of kind of the, you know, uh, sub-Saharan Africa still, you know, many parts of Asia uh, and even Latin America are still feeding themselves this way. Um, I would also say that um, there's there's a distinction to be made between um, kind of economies of scale in terms of agricultural output and economies of scale in terms of logistics. Uh, so in terms of agricultural output, there's actually um, an inverse relationship between farm size and actual productivity. Um, smaller scale farms tend to grow more per acre than, than large scale farms. Um, it is more labor intensive, right? But this to me ties into this other notion that we need to become more physical in general, right? And mm -hmm. so 
we need more people growing food and, and engaging in more manual labor to put in this labor input. And you can actually grow a lot of food. Um, the second part, so the economies of scale and logistics, uh, there, there is definitely, um, that is definitely true. And, and just in terms of like distributing the goods. Uh, so the business end, uh, there, there's certainly economies of scale, but, but again, um, you know, I think, well, there's several opportunities. One, you know, relocalizing economies. So, so if you think in terms of like a food shed, so say some kind of, some, what we would call a bioregion, um, you know, not everyone's going to be growing food necessarily. Right. I mean, that's why we have farmers markets and, and things like that. Um, uh, but you know, the more people grow their own food, I mean, and right now it's more expensive to, to purchase food that way, but, um, you know, there's a lot of, I would say low hanging fruit. I mean, just for example, having chickens in your yard, you know, it's, it's, it's really easy to do that. Um, you know, that, that probably, you know, eggs probably form forms, maybe like 30% of my calories, I would say, you know, I eat eggs almost every day. Um, let's see what else. Um, there's, there's a great book, uh, that I recommend to everybody called a small, small farm future by Chris, uh, small J or small. Hey, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, but he basically makes the case that, um, you know, this kind of regenerative local agriculture can feed the world, but it would require that we de-urbanize. Um, you know, if you think of New York City, um, you know, feeding itself in a future where perhaps there's not as much energy availability, right? So fossil fuels are going away one way or the other. They're running out and they're, they're bad for the climate. Um, and renewables uh, are definitely necessary, but there's a lot of arguments to say that they're not going to, um, you know, it's, it's not going to power the economy at the same scale in the same way. Uh, and so in order for agriculture to feed the world uh, or small scale regenerative agriculture to feed the world, uh, there needs to be um, uh, de-urbanization. This, you know, this doesn't mean that there's not going to be towns and kind of smaller cities, uh, but there needs to just be um, uh, a lot more people growing. Uh, and, and that requires more, you know, a, kind of a redistribution of populations, you know, again, not top down or anything, but, but, but you know, nat naturally kind of uh, occurring. Um, and so, you know, I, I guess that's a, a long way to say that, uh, we'll see. Right. So like, <laughs> I, I think, I think people in the permaculture world still need to prove themselves, right? Like, like we need to prove that this, this mode can feed the world, so to speak. Um, and I think, you know, um, it, you know, more and more every day we're seeing just how much, how, how, how productive, uh, you know, um, these systems can be, uh, you know, just on a per acre basis. Um, and so, but yeah, uh, <laughs> I guess yeah. that's my answer. Yeah. No, I think it's a, mm -hmm. it's, it's a good answer. I mean, it's, it's all, mm -hmm. a, it's all a work in progress and, yeah. you know, there, there have been obviously in the past, all sorts of experiments with this, you know, kibbutz style communes yeah. and things like that. But, uh, it does feel to me like it's, it's gaining steam. Maybe it's just my echo chamber. I feel like, you know, a lot of people are engaged in this and, um, I think it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, the urbanization as well. Like, 
you know, it, it might be anecdata, but man, do I know many, many people who have moved either to the countryside or to, to much smaller scale communities now. Um, and my, uh, my husband, he's from New Zealand and um, in his family, there's a, you know, real estate agents. So and they said, you know, every, like the, the price of housing since, you know, coronavirus has been exploding in New Zealand just because, you know, everyone wants to buy their count, their compound and, <laughs> and move to, you know, this, right. this pristine little place, which, yeah. which is kind of sad because we want to go there too eventually so you know that's extending our timeline a little bit um Mm. but it does feel to me like like you said you know there's just this horizon of people being able to do urban stuff in non-urban settings Mm. so this is definitely a you know a a pressure to you know Mm. to to move people from there also living in the city at the moment is is a nightmarish it's it's dystopian right so Yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, I, I really have hope for, for this scenario. And also, like you said, you know, the de- decentralization and this, uh, the cosmopolitan localism does help with, with knowledge transfer. So I think it's, it's going to be really cool. Um, I mean, I'm, um, I'm currently in the situation where I am, uh, I'm pregnant. I'm going to have a baby soon. Um, and I'm looking at the world and I'm wondering, you know, what, what shall I do with this child? <laughs> what, what, what can I, what opportunities can I, can I offer? him and uh, obviously thinking about homeschooling my husband thinks I'm a little bit nuts because he said oh you know you just need to you need to socialize the child you're just going to keep him in the bunker and teach him about your 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 right-wing conspiracy theories and he's going to turn out you know the unabomber or something (laughs) but uh, I'm curious what what your um, position is on 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 homeschooling or on the future Mm -hmm. of that I'm sure you're kind of tangentially at least associated with movements like that but I don't know what's your plan for your kids um, so I, I'm definitely, I, I definitely think homeschooling is a good option for a lot of people. Um, like right now we don't homeschool. We, you know, we have a daycare. Um, I, you know, I, I think that we need to also though, think about kind of the reformation of, of kind of public schooling and, you know, so, and, and, and look and looking to the, to the past and, and what they did, for example, you know, the, you know, the, the notion of kind of like the, the multi-age um, kind of schoolhouse where kids from all different ages interact with each other. You know, you had mentorship, you know, kind of a, a mentorship model. Um, and, you know, there was a lot more kind of physical activity. Right. So, you know, this, you know, I, I think what, you know, the modern day kind of public education system is risk really a factory to, you know, to spit out kind of conformist and highly disembodied people, right, in, in order to maximize, maximize their success in the labor market. Um, but, I, but I think that, you know, that there's, there are many models. So, for example, you know, I have a friend who lives in Uruguay, and she's from the States, uh, and, and she has three kids. And the, the school that her kids go to is this kind of like one room uh, schoolhouse thing where the parents are heavily involved, you know, like they, they, you know, there's, you know, regular kind of social activities where the parents and the teachers engage with each other and where the parents kind of help out with stuff, right? Like they might help mow the lawn or, um, you know, so they, they take a very vested interest in kind of this community level schooling. And so I, I you know, I, I think that uh, the future is definitely more localized. I don't know if, it, if it's always going to be localized to the household, but in terms of like the community, right? And this is where this notion of kind of like bringing back village economies, right? And bringing back like small towns, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, one, you know, one big perk of this is that you, you do know, 
you know, the other kids and their neighbors. And, you know, it's like, it takes the, the notion of it takes a village, right. To, to raise a child. And so it's kind of, um, taking that very seriously. Um, and, and so it's, you know, so I, I, yeah. So I, again, I guess, I guess to put a bow on this, you know, I, I definitely am in support of homeschoolers and I, and I think that's a great option for many in this current environment, but in the long term, as kind of a broad scale solution. You know, I think we need to bring back kind of like local village schoolhouses um, and, you know, heavy involvement with, with teachers and community in, in raising the children. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, that, that would, you know, be my ideal case as well to kind of maybe found some sort of home homeschoolers association and yeah. just kind of get involved and just do it in a bit of a, you know, community level. Um, yeah. and I, and I definitely agree with you about the, the, the mixed uh, environments. I really mm. do feel like a lot of the, the trauma and the bullying and, you know, everything that's going on is just this kind of this factory farm model of, you know, getting children of, you know, a lot of them of the same sex, you know, they're all kind mm. of competing, they're jockeying for status and, you know, little rooms with, with, you know, minimal oversight. But mm. when, if they were in a kind of a mixed environment, they would have kind of almost, you know, automatic status because they'd be ranked by age and then they would have to kind of right. take care of the smaller kids and, you know, yeah. kind of defer to the bigger kids. So it, it, it teaches you a different type of socialization. It's not as, yeah. you know, Lord of the flies as, as your, your usual school is. Right. And, you know, and I think this is also a big argument for, you know, um, you know, supporting multi-generational families as well. Right. And, you know, I, I can't I can't say that I've done that. Like my my parents, you know, my dad lives in Colombia. My mom lives in Oregon. My my wife's family lives in Chile. And so we're you know, so, you know, and, and we definitely feel kind of the, the lack from that. Right. Like 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 it, it, it's you know, it feels existentially painful to you know, not have your child being raised around their grandparents, right? And I, and I think that, you know, as we make this transition um, to a more, you know, kind of localized way of living, you know, just all of the kind of tacit knowledge that, you know, grandparents teach children, right? And it just and as well as just kind of the support structure, right? Like the parents can go off and go on a date, right? Because the, you know, grandma is, is watching them or something. Um, you know, I, I think that's something that, we've just lost in society. It's, it's one of the big downsides of, you know, kind of what we've seen as modernization. Um, and, you know, again, it's leading to kind of like this, you know, atomized model, which eventually becomes very centralized and statist, right. And, and the state is taking care of your children. Um, and yeah, um, yeah, I, I just, I, yeah, I, I just think that trend is not long for this world because it's going to lead to, I mean, it's just going to lead to a lot of really depressed people. It already is. and Yeah, and it really does put a lot of pressure on the act of having one child and the act of, you know, it's it's like this momentous thing that you're alone in. And, you know, maybe you and your husband can, you know, I don't know, <laughs> section off your time in, in, in a useful way, but you're probably going to have to go back to work. Like I was reading the mm. stat that I don't know, 25% of, of US women go back to work like two weeks after they've, they've given birth. Right. That's crazy. That's no nuts. way. <laughs> There's no <laughs> right, job in right. the world that would yeah. make you do that. But yeah, I mean, some people just yeah. have no choice. There's no way to, mm. to do it. Um, and there's also a lot of um, kind of information about you know if if you putting putting infants you know people who like children who are you know nursing putting them in daycare mm. there's all sorts of you know associations with that that you know mm. that, that that might might shock them in, in crazy ways and you know might lead to mm. trauma right. um 
and and that's kind of I don't know, I feel like there's a lot of room for improvement in these spaces, but um, until we, like you said, deurbanize and in a way kind of get, you know, it's 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 weird to scale back. It's weird to mm-hmm. embrace the idea of in a way degrowth and to yeah. embrace the idea of adding friction to your life, which like living with your family yeah. has added friction, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna be hard to convince some people, you know. Yeah. Um but I feel like that's you know that's gonna be a, a necessary next step. Um Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, you know, um, I don't see it so much, you know, in one way as scaling back, but I see it also as kind of an evolutionary transition where, uh, you know, we are bringing in, you know, new, new kinds of institutions, new, and new technologies that we didn't have in the past, right. Uh, to, to aid this project. And so, you know, part of it, you know, as we talked about earlier, like bringing in the technology, the communications, um, you know, many other parts of kind of decentralization, you know, there's this, there's this, um, movement called Cosmo localism, which is kind of having a global open source commons of like, you know, uh, you know, designs for machinery and things like that. But then the localization of production, like all of these things are technologies that, um, provide us the opportunity to kind of go back to what was the best about kind of traditional living, you know, and, and what was the best about life. But, but doing it in a way that's that's viable for the 21st century. And so, you know, I, I think that's an important distinction to make because, you know, I, and, and, and just in terms of branding, because it is going back, but I see it as kind of a bringing forth of the best the best elements of, you know, of our past. Um, but we're doing it in, in, in a way that, you know, we're still getting some of the benefits of modern technology of communications and things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've heard people refer to this as either archaeofuturism or trad humanism, and there's just, there's different right. streams. I think trad humanism comes from from more the like the rationalist. Archaeofuturism uh-huh. is kind of like I think a sociological term, um, and yeah. actually uh, this overlaps a little bit with uh, something I've been reading recently from uh, Alexander Dugin, this is a famed mm. Russian yeah. weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's interesting. Yeah, he's he's quite interesting. I haven't, I haven't quite figured him out, but he's interesting. I mean, if you just look at his web presence, you maybe mm. recoil because it's it's quite strange. And he's kind of, you know, he's in these kind of like magic with a K circles right. and occult and very right. strange guy. But his his books are quite interesting. And um, mm. I was I was listening to, to to Michael Millerman, who's kind of like the the, the mm-hmm. premier scholar on on Dugan. Um, yeah. And he was explaining that, you know, Dugan has, you know, he used to be a traditionalist, like, you know, old school kind of a Russian Orthodox traditionalist. And now mm-hmm. his perspective is more of a kind of revivifying the past and finding the eternal or kind of like ferreting out yeah. what what is, you know, what is the, uh, the the abolition of time or something like that, just extracting mm-hmm. what what yeah. is eternal. And it's essentially the same idea. And it's, you know, again, mm-hmm. you know, the confluence of, of streams of thought, you know, also from from the the weirdo Russians <laughs> coming to right. this point, yeah, yeah. That, that also that, it sounds familiar to me to uh, Jean, John Gepser uh, and his brand of what, what's called integralism, uh, and he has kind of a similar idea. I mean, I'm going to totally butcher because it's a very it's very nuanced kind of kind of picture, but he also sees kind of you know uh, moving from kind of the um, pre, he has like two, three phases, like pre-perspectival, perspectival, and a-perspectival. And right now we're in kind of this perspectival phase. But we're moving into an a-perspectival phase, uh, which basically means that, you know, our notion of time, you know, 
just changes pretty radically in, in, in so many elements of our past from, you know, all the way from kind of like our, our kind of magical, mythic, archaic, um, you know, all the way up through now, like they all kind of get integrated into the present. Um, and they all, they, they all kind of got, get brought forth into the present. Um, and so it's, it's interesting that I, I just, I just mentioned that because it's interesting that this, this kind of notion is coming from many different angles, um, which I think is, I don't know, encouraging. Yeah, is, does yeah. this uh, overlap with like uh, Ken Wilber's work or Robert yeah, Keegan? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Uh, so Wilbur drew upon Gebser because Gebser was like early 20th century. Uh, and, and Wilbur, I would say, is a little bit more linear in his approach. Like he has like these, you know, stages of like yeah. personal and cultural evolution. Right. And I think Gebser would say, well, it's not it's not so linear. It's much more nonlinear than that. But but, but Wilbur definitely draws upon Gebser. Uh, and Kegan, yeah, I mean, Kegan has his own system, you know, of kind of ego development, right? And, and how we think of ourselves in relationship to the world. Um, and uh, I'm not sure how strong a connection between between Kagan itself and, and Gebser, but I know I know like, I know that Kagan and Wilbur are pals. And <laughs> uh, even though their systems are kind of different, but but there's definitely some overlap. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah. it's a really interesting field. I mean, I, I used to work for a company that was kind of had this kind of integralist approach baked in. Mm -hmm. And we used to yeah. have a, like subject object interviews as part of the of the of the joining. Right. So uh -huh. it, was, it was it was quite a cool experience. Um, so that's kind of the little yeah. I know about the spaces from there. Um, you, <laughs> right. you, there's also, also, you mentioned just to, sorry to cut in, but um, so on, on, you know, in my bio, I say metamodern localists. And so mm -hmm. metamodern uh, uh, metamodernism is kind of like, I would say, Integral 2.0. That's just my point of view. I know a lot of Integralists would <laughs> would not like that. Um, you know, it's uh, it's it's a little bit more. Um, you know, where, whereas I think Integral has more of kind of a, a boomer vibe. I would say metamodernism <laughs> ha has a bit more of a millennial vibe to it. But it but it also brings in a lot of these kind of stage models and 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 develop developmental models and, and things like that um yeah anyway just, just cool. yeah that. that was exactly my my next question yeah i mean i'm, I'm curious because I've, I've heard about metamodernism i've heard um like alexander bard talk about it mm -hmm. don't know much about it like what's uh, what's kind of the the gist of metamodernism what what makes a metamodernist yeah. well there's not one metamodernism so like um, and it's, there's kind of evolved different strands but i'd say you know a core distinction so there's kind of two main types of metamodernism, I would say there's the, there's the descriptive type where they're just seeing, um, trends in culture, uh, and society of, well, we're moving beyond postmodernism. Um, you know, where postmodernism, we, you know, uh, is, is kind of a reaction to modernism, uh, and it's kind of, you know, it attempts to deconstruct. Um, but, uh, you know, what they're noticing is that there's kind of new movements in the art and culture that are kind of, you know, are, are, are still bringing with them kind of the irony and kind of the, the, the kind of the critical view of postmodernism, but but they're also, um, you know, kind of bringing in elements of modernism, like bringing back grand narratives, uh, but in a more kind of self-aware sense. Um, and the other, you know, and then, you know, something else that's emerged is what I would call kind of prescriptive or political metamodernism and, and um, you know, a really kind of well-known author in the spaces uh, goes by Hansi Freinacht, and he's written books uh, called The Listening Society and Nordic Ideology. 
Um, and, and he, and he's really saying like this, you know, this should be like a political project where we need to think about stages of development, um, working with people where they are, but also kind of infusing these ideas into our, into our politics and our thinking. Um, and so, you know, what makes something metamodern? Um, you know, I, I would say one is kind of being, you know, kind of influenced by postmodernism, but, but kind of being over it, like, okay, like, you know, we need to, like, sure, like, you know, uh, truth is nebulous and, and all of these things, but we can't build a society on that, right? Like, it's, it's just gonna, you know, it's, it's gonna, it's gonna eventually just decay and, and kind of eat itself alive, right? And so we need to actually propose new, you know, kind of new ideas, new systems that, um, again, is, is, is kind of like, critical of modernism, but also critical of postmodernism. Um, and so that's, I think that's one of the cores. I mean, another, like, like I think the main developmental stage model that Hansi Freinacht likes is the model of hierarchical complexity, uh, like by Commons, I forget his first name. Um, you know, he's, he's not as big on like Robert Kagan uh, or spiral dynamics. Um, so kind of the Wilberian model. Uh, but, you know, there, there's actually a great article um, that maybe we can link to called Five Ways That You Know That You're, you're, you're Metamodern. Um, and, you know, some of the ways include like awareness of allergies. So like, for example, if you go through a list of just terms like, you know, communism, capitalism, socialism, you know, like feminism. And if you instinctively, instinctively have kind of a, a negative reaction to it, um, that means you have an allergy. And so being metamodern means that you know, you're, you're kind of, you're kind of stoic in the sense with terminology and you're really interested in like kind of digging into the details and, and, and not, uh, fighting over, you know, as we talked about earlier, like all of these terms floating around and it's like, oh, you call yourself that. So I don't like you. Right. But like, what does that actually mean in practice? Um, and you know, uh, another one is awareness of hierarchies. And so he, he distinguishes between game acceptance and game denial. So game acceptance is like, Okay, I just accept kind of the traditional, you know, the traditional hierarchies as they are. Um, and game denial is, um, you know, I, I, I kind of, um, uh, you know, I, I pretend that hierarchies don't exist. And so it's about, you know, kind of creating a new set of hierarchies that make sense, right? That are, that are somewhat natural in a sense, but 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 are but are based on are not based on your, you know, on, on your background or your race or your creed but, you know, are based on a better criteria. Like, you know, just for example, you know, I'm, I'm, I could be very good at, at building, you know, I'm a, I'm a builder. People are going to defer to me. That's a hierarchy, right? Um, that's a hierarchy that makes sense. And so not being afraid of hierarchies, but also not accepting kind of the, kind of, kind of the packaged hierarchies of the past as well. Uh, and there's, there's, a, there's a few others that I could list on, but, you know, there's a lot of, <laughs> I guess, a lot of things that make you metamodern. Yeah, I mean that's that's super fascinating. I mean, it's um there's there's always kind of the the challenge to know how how much can you calibrate this stuff because a lot of it, you know, is kind of emergent. You know, we're 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 great apes. We're quite advanced great apes, but we are, you know, mm -hmm. we kind of have a certain instinct for hierarchy. Uh, and to me, mm -hmm. you know, that because uh, I've I've been kind of in you know the uh, effective altruist scene and you know and in game B and uh, things like that and. Right. A lot of times it seemed to me that, you know, things 
because people weren't necessarily aware of kind of the the, the biological substructure that you know a lot of stuff is mm-hmm. is emergent they, they these spaces would collapse in just trying to coordinate and in, in coordination right. efforts uh, or someone coming in with kind of like an extreme version of an ideology and trying to take over the whole space and because everyone was so conciliatory right. and so consensus driven right. they would allow that <laughs> and then, then yeah. it was yeah. just it was just in, eternal conflicts about wokeness and not wokeness and right. you know right. yeah and then mm-hmm. I would just leave <laughs> at one point because it got really scary. Right, so I think right. that, that, you know, set, setting a limit because, you know, it's like it's mm-hmm. in a way to me, it feels like it's easy to say, OK, you know, we're, we're open to flexible hierarchies. But, you know, mm-hmm. you know, in a way, maybe that's why I'm, I'm maybe instinctively more drawn to the right side of the spectrum, because I feel like, OK, yeah. just for things to function, you need a little bit of a structure. You know, the structure is, is precious. It's important. Obviously, right. if it's too rigid, it turns into into hell on earth. But, you know, I, I tend to defer to the structure a little bit more than most people. Right. Yeah. I mean, somebody who says that we should get rid of all hierarchies, I would just say, oh, have you ever had kids? Right. Like, are, are you going to are you really going to, you know, uh, treat your two year old as an absolute equal? Uh, right. Like if your kid two year old doesn't want to go to bed, are you just going to say, OK, you know, if they just want to eat sugar all and candy all day, are you just going to say, OK, like your, your, you know, your perspective is as valid as mine. Right. And so, you know, extend that to society. And and you're right. You use the word fluid hierarchies like we don't want rigid hierarchies that 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 don't have validity right we, we don't want invalid hierarchies but we do want you know w- you know we do want a culture where we can recognize that you know somebody has has skills or perspectives or insight that that you should defer to right it, for for a given set you know in a given circumstance not doesn't mean that i'm going to defer to you in, in every part of my life but um and that's where the fluidity comes in where it's like you know, there might be a higher, you know, me and my friend, uh, there might be a hierarchy in one set of circumstances, but then it'll be reversed in another set of circumstances. And so that's, I think, where the fluidity comes in. Um, and, and so navigating kind of the, the fluidity, but not having it so fluid that, it, you know, it just kind of spills out, you know, <laughs> yeah, spills out everywhere. Dysfunctional. Yeah. And, and yeah. that kind of oscillation, I think, is a, is a very metamodern kind of sensibility where you're, you're consistently, you know, oscillating from these different perspectives, you know, in a way that, you know, not in a way to kind of have like the, um, you know, kind of perspectival madness, you know, or multi-perspectival madness, but in a way where you're actually like, um, you're able to move forward, you're able to kind of construct, you know, whatever you're trying to construct. Yeah. And it feels to me like this is this is something that the West has done historically done better than maybe maybe the East or more Eastern regions, Um, just because, you know, the 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 hierarchies of competence have mattered more in the West just because, you know, there there was more to do, especially after the Industrial Revolution. You know, there's Mm -hmm. competency had a had a high market value, which was not necessarily that important in more stagnant cultures, like where, you know, you had subsistence agriculture, then you had, you know, three three stratums of feudal lords, and then there was the Sultan in Istanbul and that was it. Um so it's it is interesting to Yeah, sorry. So no, no, go, go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting because I mean, a, a lot of the stuff that I I notice my main my main noticing is kind of between these two cultures because I grew up in in Romania, mm-hmm. I spent most of my life there, and then I moved to the West and, and worked mm-hmm. there for about ten years, and kind of just seeing the differences and seeing kind of um, yeah. 
like the, the the coordination that happens in the West and kind of how mm. that's that functions and how that's now eroding in some circles, um, right. and then contrasting that with a kind of just a different game theoretic equilibrium that we had here, which is much more inclined mm -hmm. towards the defect option, um, yeah. and and contrasting those two, it 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 did seem to me like a, always like a, a a big difference, and I'm curious what what your feeling is about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm not as familiar with, with the East, right? Like I've, I've been in the West all my life. Um, you know, but what you're describing, it, you know, it seems like, you know, it's almost what you're describing is kind of the baby in the bathwater of modernity, right. Of, of, of kind of this notion of, of progress, this notion of, um, you know, competence, competency hierarchies or meritocracies or something. Uh, but, you know, what we've been talking about throughout a lot of this conversation is relocalizing, you know, a, a lot of what we would call subsistence agriculture. And so we're saying, hey, we need to get back to this stuff because that's, you know, we've also thrown out the baby of the bathwater of, of what you're, you know, what you're describing in your experience of, of the East. Right. And so I would say that's also a very meta modern move is to say, you know, like, how can we kind of creatively, you know, reconstruct a new system, you know, taking, bringing forth all of the best aspects of the old system, right? So we still want like the coordination mechanisms that that we get through modernity, right? And we get through, you know, uh, digital technology and things like that, but um, we don't want to live there. Like, like we actually want to live in a place, in a, in, in a home. Um, we want to, you know, um, be in touch with much more with, you know, where does our food come from? Where do the sources of our sustenance come from? Um, and, you know, that's, you know, uh, from a modernist perspective, that's kind of like stagnation. But, you know, from kind of this metamon perspective, like, or at least my metamon perspective, I'm not going to speak for the whole scene. You know, that's like, you know, like, like there's there's many aspects of that that we want to get back to. I mean, I think Cottagecore is all about trying to get back to kind of like, you know, um, you know, a quasi subsistence subsistence or self-sufficient life. Right. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm like speaking about cottage core. Uh, one one of the the major accusations that's been thrown at uh, at uh, kind of our our, our semi mutual circle uh, mm -hmm. of, of of scene is the accusation of of LARPing. You know, what's mm -hmm. what's your what's your vibe on LARPing? I'm actually I'm actually pro LARPing, yeah. but I'm curious what 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 do you feel about it? Yeah, I mean we're all we're all LARPing right now. I mean we're all kind of you know, this, these kinds of alien, you know, we're these alienated subjects, um, in this modern postmodern world. And, and we're trying to, to recover something that we've lost. Right. And so, you know, I'm LARPing, you know, I'm, I'm a baby homesteader, like we're all LARPing, but you know, it's like you LARP it, you LARP until you make it right. Like you, you keep LARPing and that's how you learn. And, and eventually, you know, uh, your, your LARP index will, 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 will decrease if you, if you take it seriously. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we, that's the thing is like the amount of the amount of kind of embedded, embodied tacit wisdom that say, you know, our great, great, great grandparents had with just with regards to kind of self-sufficiency, uh, you know, on land and, and being able, you know, is is just orders of magnitude greater than, you know, what we what we have at the moment. Right. Or, what we know. Um, but and so we need to recover that. And and so, yeah, I mean, part of recovering that is LARPing until until you get there. Yeah, it, it is interesting because, uh, you know, my 
my my grandfather, he um, on my mother's side and on my dad's side, he was like, he was a kind of, you know, subsistence peasant that only got shoes, I think, for a seventh birthday or something like he right. was, you know, hardcore, you know, tied to the ground, yeah. you know, one one generation removed from literal serfs. So, right, uh, right. yeah, and he, he had all this knowledge. But it's interesting because, you know, even even during communism, the, the, the glory days of of uh, of you know, giving something to your children was to to get them as far as possible from that knowledge from from the land. Right. Because, you know, yeah. if, if you're a subsistence farmer, you, you know, you kind of you want to escape that condition because you want you want to get to a more right. comfortable existence. But, yeah. it's you know, like in, in the span of 50 years, we've moved from that to, you know, someone leaving food at my door and I don't even have to see his face like. Right. It's, it's right. really accelerated up to a, a, a crazy degree. And right. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think um, what I would call new localism is we're trying to recover a lot of that lifestyle, but but we want um, we want to utilize kind of these modern these modern technologies uh, to you know decrease the downside risk of that, right? So, for example, modern modern medicine, you know, I think still should have a place, right? Like um, you know the the infant mortality rate of, of the past, we we don't necessarily want to replicate that, right? Um, uh, you know, the ability to, um, you know, to have this cosmopolitan element where if suddenly if there's kind of like a, uh, a natural disaster in your village, you know, there, you are tapped in still to this global network, you know, that, you know, uh, of mutual aid, you know, perhaps right. Where, you know, you're not as isolated as before. And because you're not as isolated, you know, you, you are, you are taking out some of that downside risk of, of kind of the hyper-localization, right? As well as just kind of, you know, you know, depending on the circumstance, you know, just the malnutrition, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like if there was, if there was like a, you know, a plague or <laughs> a plague or a, what, you know, whatever it is, like a lot of those, you know, dark downside elements, you know, ideally in the new localism, you know, would, would be much less. Yeah. And I feel like in a way there's uh, an inescapability to LARPing at the moment, because mm -hmm. I was just thinking, you know, what would be the, what would absolve you of the accusation of LARPing if you're like, if you're someone who's, you know, engaged in permaculture or things like that, yeah. um, you know, it would be if a relative would hand down this information to you. I mean, you would have to be Amish essentially. That, yeah. That's about it. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you would have to grow up, um, where, you know, in a, in a society where mm -hmm. by the age of 11, you know, you're able to kind of like do most of the activities on the farm. Right. Whereas me, I started homesteading at the age of 36. Right. And so I have no kind of embodied cognition around it. I have to learn everything from scratch. Like I'm a two-year-old. Right. Um, and, and so, but I think a metric for me of like, when, when aren't we LARPing anymore is just, you know, for example, what percentage of my food do I grow or, or get locally, right? So it's it's both LARPing an individual homesteader, but also kind of like at a localized economy, right? Uh, and so I'm, I see it, my project is kind of dual of like, you know, um, promoting kind of local food systems in general. And that's, that's part of, you know, what I study and do at the university um, as well as kind of at a, at a bioregional level. Uh, but, you know, the proof is definitely in the pudding there, right? Like, like, you know, right now, most of our calories still come from the supermarket, you know, and I'm ashamed to say it, but there's just, there's just no, you know, there's just not, not other good options at the moment. And so in 10 years, you know, say now if 10% uh, of our food, 
you know, is, is grown or, or bought locally, you know, if that's not like up to 50% or, or higher, I'll be disappointed. Right. And so there's, uh, you know, for me, there's some clear metrics of like, okay, like, when am I not a LARPer anymore? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, you, you have to have to negotiate that with yourself and with, with yeah. the Twitter trolls. <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> no because this is essentially kind of the discussion i have less less mm. about permaculture and localism but about trad you know about being trad somehow yeah. i've been, been co-opted into this meme because i i believe in differences between the sexes and other crazy things and um <laughs> <laughs> um mm. uh, you know it's it's this whole thing about you know trad trad, trad larpers you know people who mm. aren't trad but i mean i i've seen a lot of people you know you know, moving to the countryside and having children. And if this is, if this is the result of a LARP, I'm like, you know, more power to you. It's yeah, it's more than yeah. most people are doing. So. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, one of the, I mean, I was, I was kind of like trolling trads yesterday on Twitter where I was saying like, you know, cause, cause there's the, there's a Teddy K line, like the industrial revolution and its consequences, the word disaster for the human race. And I, and I wrote pre-digestion and its consequences were disaster for the human race. Pre-digestion means the invention of fire. Right. Because before <laughs> before we could we had fire, we had much bigger, you know, we had, we had much bigger guts, you know, um, and much smaller brains. And because we were able to cook our food and pre-digest it, a lot of the energy was able to go into, you know, into the creation of uh, our brains, into our, the complexity of our cultures, et cetera. And so it's like, you know, th there is kind of this, um, you know, kind of, you know, it, it, you know, trad in one way is, is a little bit absurd just because you know, where is the period in history that you're going to, you're going to try to like a, a small scale yeah. farm? Well, well, most of human history was country gatherers, right? Like why not, you know, and so, but, but, you know, I think the way to get around this, you know, um, this kind of trolling is again, to say that, you know, we're not trying to go back to the past. We're trying to bring the best parts of the past into the future, like of all the ages of, you know, indigenous consciousness, hunter gathering, you know, traditional kind of small farming, you know, all of these things we're trying to bring back into the present, bring up into the present and and, and really try and recover the, the, the really good things that we've lost. Yeah, through, through the sacred act of LARPing. <laughs> through so. the sacred act of LARPing. In fact, if you're not if you're not LARPing, um, that means you're I think that means you're stagnant. Right. Like that means that you're comfortable with the status quo. You're a perfect frictionless libertarian subject. And, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, God bless you. If you're not LARPing, you're not pushing the boundaries. Exactly. I, I like this, yeah. you know, LAR LARPers of the world unite. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Oh. Perfect. So there was a question of the show that I want to ask mm -hmm. you, uh, and yeah. it uh, refers to um, a subversive thinker. You know, is there, mm -hmm. is there someone that you'd like to recommend to people that you think is not getting enough airtime that people would benefit from knowing either tied mm -hmm. to permaculture or whatever you're interested in? Um, you know, we've got all sorts of candidates for this one. Yeah. Yeah. So I was thinking about this, uh, this question, and I'm, I'm thinking that this thinker might might be subversive for your audience, um, not necessarily for my audience. And this person is Joe Brewer. Uh, he, he recently wrote a, a book, it's free online, called The Design Pathway for Regenerating Earth. And he's very uncompromising in terms of like, you know, he's basically saying like, you know, ecological collapse is happening. Um, you know, he's he's more of a doomer than I am. Like he he sees that that, you know, there's just gonna be a lot of uh, population die off through this. Um, but he's also very constructive in the sense that, you know, he's, you know, he, he's what you would call a bioregionalist. Um, uh, or he talks about bioregional bio regeneration where, you know, he talks about like, we need to recover kind of indigenous consciousness. And, you know, this, this, this 
product. Um, and, and also, you know, he uses terms like decolonization, which might be an allergy <laughs> to, to some on the right. Um, but, you know, his, his thing is all about, we need to start organizing at a bioregional scale to design our lifestyles around landscapes and around the regeneration of landscapes. Um, and we need to create kind of global networks across bioregions. So it's basically what we've talked about with cosmological localism, but thinking at the bioregional scale. Um, and I would say that he's definitely, you know, he's, he's kind of a brilliant polymath. So that's why I say he's very underrated. Um, you know, he's well-versed in like complexity science and, and um, cognitive science um, and evolutionary theory. I mean, he's probably the, one of the most well-read people I've ever met. Um, and he's currently in, in Barichara, Colombia, basically trying to bootstrap, um, you know, his vision there. Um, and, and so, you know, I'd say he's subversive because he's uncompromising. He doesn't sugarcoat the, how stark our predicament is. But um, he's also brilliant and, you know, and, and he titled his book, The Design Pathway for Regenerating Earth. You know, so he's also very uncompromising. It's like, you know, all of the other people are full of shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you're just deluding yourselves. But here, here's a, you know, here's a path forward um, for, you know, preserving life, including human life on Earth. Um, and so that's my that's my candidate. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I haven't heard of him, so uh, definitely a, a good recommendation. Um, it's, uh, I feel like complexity science is, you know, is, is really a, a lens that is coming in fast here right. because, you know, the, yeah. what we're dealing with is scale, like you said, you know, the, the mm -hmm. big differences between localism and globalism. Um, and um, I was tweeting with Joe Norman before a podcast, and he said that wow. you have a, uh, you guys are writing a paper together. Uh, yeah, yeah. Tell, tell me about that. Yeah, well, it's it's just starting, so we'll we'll see what develops out of it. But um, uh, the tentative title is "Cosmopolitan Localism and Anti Fragility," and I think, uh, you know, I think the the main outlines of the article are that we need localism to kind of prevent downside risk in terms of like the fragility of large scale systems, and so we need to decentralize, we need to relocalize, but uh, we need the cosmopolitan part, kind of the information flow one to kind of speed up innovation across these spaces. So like kind of what I was talking about with, with the permaculture space, uh, but it also kind of decreases another kind of risk, uh, another kind of downside risk, which I think we also kind of talked about where, you know, if you're, if you're, if everyone's completely isolated in their, in their hyper-localized communities, if a disaster hits one, one place, sure, it won't spread. So you, 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 you know, nearly as much as in a globalized economy. So you're, you're decreasing that risk, but you're also, there's no safety net. Right. At least that's my interpretation of, of kind of where we're going. He might he might disagree. Um, and so, you know, when we're thinking about anti-fragility, we need to kind of, again, combine the best of both worlds of localism, but also kind of connectivity. But 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 a kind of connectivity that, um, you know, that we can strategically disconnect when necessary. So I think that's that's definitely what he's emphasizing of, like, for example, with the pandemic, um, you know, we need the ability to for example, prevent interstate travel or something, right? Um, uh, which, you know, decreases the, the, the downside risk of connectivity. Um, and so, you know, so, I, so it's really going to be about kind of combining the best of these. Basically, I think this whole conversation, but probably in more kind of, in more language aligned with like Taleb uh, mm -hmm. complexity, you know, Norman complexity, uh, which, which he is really, really bringing in because I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated by complexity thinking and complexity science, but I'm a neophyte and he's, he's the expert. So yeah, you know, for sure. A, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of the really kind of like technical language and stuff is going to come from him. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a big, big Joe Norman fan. I've, I've learned yeah. a lot from from just yeah reading his tweets. To be honest, I haven't right. really read much yeah. more. But yeah, uh, same here. he was yeah. one of he was one of my big influences, both for localism because before I was a localist, you know, I was like a meta, I considered myself a meta modernist, and then kind of a bioregionalist. Uh, and, and and he's really one who he, he's really the one who like you know made me realize how much you know how much insight and wisdom is in kind of localism you know this idea of homesteading like I don't think I'd be a homesteader right now if it wasn't for Joan Norman so so props to him I've, I I owe him a lot in terms of my intellectual evolution yeah I'm definitely definitely a big Joan Norman stan and Chelsea Norman as well shout out yeah, to Chelsea yeah she's great yeah. she's great yeah. Yeah, yep. she's got good. She's given me mm-hmm. lots of lots of super useful info for this uh, yeah. whole uh, biological journey that I'm on <laughs> for the right, first time. Right. So it's, uh, yeah. it's it's super important. Um, mm-hmm. And what I love about you know their presence is like they're 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 wait they're they're one of us. You know, it's not just like mm-hmm. cottage core LARPing and stuff like that. It's not just like an aesthetics account uh, because mm-hmm. a, a lot of the stuff and that's kind of also I understand why people you know kind of make make fun of the trad meme and stuff uh, because yeah. there's a lot of people just you know posing and you know plaid shirts and stuff and, you know <laughs> cutting right, down right. trees for no reason. Uh-huh. <laughs> but uh, you know, there's I mean, what what they show even in terms of lifestyle and stuff is mm-hmm. is very um, I don't know fact-based i hate i hate this concept but it's like you know they've they've lived it they know what they're talking about and they're doing it Mm -hmm. for you know for essentially the same reasons that i i would do it you know because i've i've kind of been like in a way like you you know a technocrat and then i've kind Mm -hmm. of seen the error of my ways and (laughs) to the 180 um so yeah I mean, Jason, I'm super happy you came on. I, I love this conversation. Um, is there anything else you're working on? Anything else that you want people to know about or where, where people can find you? Um, not not at the moment that I can think of. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Cognizor. Um, you know, for being a self-described localist, I'm pretty social. Uh, and so if you DM me, I'll probably, I'll probably respond. Um, and if you're interested in these ideas, you want to talk about it more. Uh, let me know. I'm, I'm happy to I'm happy to share insight and, and information. And I also want to thank you very much, Alex. This has been a really, really delightful conversation, and it's, it's nice to get to know you a little bit. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm I'm super happy you came on. Thank you. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you.